Welcome to the World of Work podcast. This is the podcast for people who are curious about working life and what it tells us about ourselves. Your hosts are Susie Kenefick and Anya McGuire. We're executive coaches with an insatiable curiosity about the life that is lived at work. In this podcast, we reflect on what's happening in the world of work and what it means for everyone who goes to work. So what sort of week have you had, Susie? Well, it's been very busy, Anya, I have to say. It's that time of year, I think. It's typical in that last push up to to Christmas. Um, people are just really, really keen to get things done. So I have to say I've, I've been busy and I've been tired. But at least there's a little bit of a little bit of positivity on the horizon now, thanks to the announcement that we're going to be going back to level three for December. So hopefully there'll be some festivity planning for, for us. So, yeah, that, that, that's been my week. How has yours been? Well, very similar. I, I think everyone is really looking to the finish line now. We've As we're recording this, it's three weeks to go till the Christmas break. And uh, I think it can't come quickly enough. But as you say, there is some positivity on the horizon. So do you think you've been your authentic self this week, Susie, can I ask? I'd say if I had to put a figure on it, I would say about hmm, 60 to 70% of the time. Oh, that sounds pretty high. Yeah. Did you enjoy that? I did, yeah. I think we're well, we're all working from home now, I suppose, most of the time. So if being your authentic self means not wearing makeup and having untamed hair, then I'd say probably maybe more than 90%, but that's not what we're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think everybody can identify with that. Well, I have to say on the news, on the main sort of headline news, I'm really stepping back from it, as I think a lot of people are. I think there's a bit sort of overload with obsessing about the whole pandemic and so on. So I've stepped back from that. But one thing I I have noticed is that uh, Barack Obama has published a very big autobiography, which is getting great reviews in the news this week. And uh, he's somebody that I suppose I've had in my mind in relation to our topic today, which is how to be your authentic self at work. Mm-hmm. And I, I think Barack Obama is is a very good example of someone who who really knows how to be his authentic self. He's not a man that's a sort of regular man like most of us. He's a quite an exceptional person, but I think has found ways to be authentic that work for him. And I suppose that's kind of one of the things we're, we're going to be talking about today. So some of the ways that I think he's found to be authentic, I believe that when he took over as a leader, being an exceptional person in relation to the cohort of U.S. presidents, that some of the things he did were, you know, show show some of his his human side, some of his vulnerabilities. For example, his his inability to give up smoking, which is something I, I believe Michelle gives out to him about. Mm-hmm. So I thought he's a good example, and uh, I have his autobiography, which I, as I see in the news, is 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 getting good coverage. I've heard it's, it's over 700 pages. So are you, are you planning on reading it is my question. It's pretty weighty. I have it in my hand right now. And I, I have read his other books and, and they're really well written. So yeah, I will read it, but possibly over the Christmas holidays. Well, sounds good. I might borrow it from you if, if you have positive reviews afterwards. Okay. You've mentioned our, our, our topic for today, I suppose. It, that you know the, the whole question of how to be your authentic self at work and and what that means um, and and in this episode we're going to explore the idea of of exactly that how to, how to be yourself at work I suppose for for want of a better way of putting it and we're going to ask what it really means to be yourself and, and to look at how you bring your authentic self to work and um, so Anya you might just give us a little bit of a, an intro um, on our our guest who we're going to be speaking to later on in the episode. Yes, our guest today, as somebody who knows an awful lot about authenticity, is Roland Anderson. And we're going to be talking to Roland a bit later. Roland is an alcohol and addiction counsellor, and we'll be getting his particular take on how to be yourself at work and finding out about what he has learned in his professional life about authenticity, both at work and elsewhere. So really looking forward to what I know will be a very insightful discussion with a very accomplished guest. And uh, hopefully learning something about the the authentic self that Roland brings when he works with people at probably one of the most vulnerable times in their lives. So that's something to look forward to later on. Absolutely. Um, I suppose most of us think, you know, when we think about our workplaces as somewhere where we have to try and behave professionally, let's put that in inverted commas. But, but the question is, what does that really mean? And we're going to just do a deep dive into that topic today um, and really, really questioning what it means to be yourself at work and how to do this. Um, I'm I'm reflecting a little bit about our idea of of what professionalism is and how that might be different to being authentic. Mm, That's a really deep question. So can you be professional and authentic? Is there a conflict? And 
what does it mean to be your authentic self at work? So some very deep questions there. Uh, Susie, you set a very high bar. But tell us, um, let's talk a bit about one of the words we've mentioned, which is professionalism. What does that mean, Susie? Well, I think professionalism is one of those words that, you know, we all instinctively know what we think it is, but but perhaps we don't always take the time to stop and explicitly consider what the various facets of professionalism were, um, and, you know, as it were. But but going back to basics, the Collins Dictionary defines professionalism as a combination of skill and high standards. So I suppose, you know, that's that's the definition of it. Um, but but I think really, in you know, in reality, professionalism probably covers a whole host of, of unwritten rules, maybe in the workplace about how we behave, how we speak, how we dress and, and just generally how we conduct ourselves. So I, I like to think that really, you know, and in, in, in what I've been looking at and in preparing for this, this, this chat about the concept of professionalism, I, I thought that it's probably best described as a, a sort of a je ne sais quoi. If you like, mm. you know, it's, as I say, it's a term a lot of people use, but we don't always think, um, you know, in any great depth as to, as to what it means. And I think it's really fair to say that, uh, you know, a lot of what it means to be professional has has evolved over, over time. Mm. And I think very much so in recent times and um, since we've all gone into a, a working from home environment. Absolutely. Yeah, we've moved into uh, a new level of authenticity uh, involving leggings and uh, hoodies and stuff. Absolutely. I always think back to when I was a child and, uh, you know, Mary Poppins was one of my favourite films. And I remember that scene where, where, where Jane and Michael go to visit their, their dad in the bank and all the men in the bank are sitting around in their sort of black pinstripe suits and they've got their bowler hats and they all look very sort of body and you know, formal and stiff. And um, I suppose that that's probably more of an old fashioned idea of what professionalism is. And if you could could capture it in its traditional sense, that what it is. But I think it's fair to say it's, it's very much evolved over the last uh, certainly 50 years or so um, and, and even more rapidly in, in the last 20 years, particularly with the um, with the tech industry and, you know, these very young entrepreneurs and um, billionaires who, who take a totally different approach to what it means to have professionalism in the workplace, you know, a kind of a flatter, less hierarchical structure. Mm, so very timely then, given the sort of move towards flatter, more dynamic teams and, and, and different kinds of structures for organizations. A good question then to ask. So our question today, can you be both professional and authentic? And also maybe let's ask, are there any downsides to being yourself at work? So let's start off by looking at authenticity. Now, the author Herminia Ibarra, and I know Susie that uh, she's a favorite of yours, um, talks a lot about uh, authenticity. She's an expert in that area. And she describes it as part of a person's executive presence, something we talk a lot about as coaches working with leaders. And she, she has some, some very interesting work called The Paradox of Authenticity, something well worth reading if this is an area that interests you. And she, has, she identifies three factors that she says make up authenticity. One is being true to yourself. And it's interesting because I suppose for some people, being true to themselves is a way of being where for some of us, we like to be more chameleons. It's, it's something we often look at in coaching or in assessing candidates for roles is how much somebody can flex who they are. And so that's different for everyone. And then the other thing she talks about is consistently ensuring that your behavior matches your feelings. And, and that sounds to me like a very comfortable place to be, to be behaving in the way that feels intuitively right to you and, and using your emotional intelligence, which I know is something you're going to tell us a bit about later, Susie. And the third thing she has then is talking about your values and using your values to guide the choices you make. Again, something that I think is, is very comfortable for people, something that maybe as professionals, it takes us a while to get there. But towards the end of somebody's professional career, that might be a sign of having had a very effective career, being able to use your values to make your choices. That's very interesting. And actually, I should say as well, just before we forget that, um, that, that Ibarra article and, and any of the other articles or podcasts or, or videos that we refer to throughout the podcast, we'll make sure to just to link those in the show notes so people can go and do a little bit of extra research if they're interested in the topic. But it just strikes me, Anya, when you were talking about, you know, Ibarra's, you know, three pillars of authenticity, if you like, um, it seems that those attributes are very linked or are very closely linked to identity in a way. And I suppose I just I just wonder about that in, in, in a sense, because what we're effectively saying is, you know, you striving to be more yourself at work, um, you know, dress the way you want, um, express yourself, you know, really, really, really be your authentic self, that that, that could be 
potentially at odds with the traditional notion of what professionalism is and, and what the standards expected of us are in the workplace and, and whether there could potentially be some some conflict. And I suppose one thing I was I was really thinking about is, you know, does that apply across the board, particularly in a more diverse world now, you know, where we have people coming from all kinds of different backgrounds and demographics and, you know, racial, gender, sexuality, all, all these different, you know, these, these different aspects of a person's identity or authenticity, which they're bringing into the workplace. And it's, it's a lot less uniform than it used to be. Um, I, I just I just wonder about how some of some of those factors might, might influence the expression of the person's authenticity at work. And I know this is something we talked about before, and I know you had, had some thoughts on that. Yeah, such a good point. I, I think so important to say. And I, what's in my head at the moment is something that's often said about women who, of course, are in many ways a minority in work or certainly at a senior level. And something that's often said, how can you be it if you can't see it? So I think what you're saying there is that in, in most of our workplaces now, and I think it's a really good thing, we have quite a diverse range of people all trying to be something, being themselves, and often trying to be something that they've had no personal experience of or finding themselves in a workplace where, where there are no role models. So I think something that as leaders we need to bring to our workplaces is, is just a little bit of empathy and a bit of recognition that we're all trying out what Ibarra calls provisional identities and seeing how these these fit. And we're, we're spending a lot of time at work working out these new identities that we're building because, of course, we change all the time and we don't have the same identity we started off with when we were the age of the Mary Poppins children you, were, you referred to earlier. So I think a, a nice little thing for us to think about is are we bringing empathy to our work colleagues and, and supporting them with helping build new identities for themselves? And I think maybe, you know, one of the conclusions that I'm, I'm taking from thinking about some of those those issues is maybe, maybe professionalism and authenticity, you know, they're not in conflict with one another if your authentic self is, we, we often talk about the pale, male and stale sort of traditional profile of a leader. And that's because that's changing so rapidly now that that there are there is room and there has to be room for different expressions of identity um, in, in the workplace. And, and as you were saying, it's really, really important for leaders, you know, in, in the modern workplace to 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 embrace that and I think to find ways to encourage it. It's a really, really interesting area. I mean, I think what you say makes me think it's really exciting to be part of this new workplace that we're all forming, particularly uh, the virtual workplace. But we we are all forming a new a new way of working, and and hopefully a way that's more diverse and more forgiving. And of course, when you when you're used to now seeing people with with the child on their on their knee or their washing hanging in the background, you're seeing a much more authentic person, and and maybe that's something really positive, and maybe that will increase the level of humanity and empathy we have in the workplace. I think so. I mean, particularly where, where the science does seem to say that the people who are more in touch with their authentic selves and they're comfortable being authentic at work are more likely to succeed. And again, I can I can link the article itself, but there there are some leadership scholars who who reviewed over a thousand leadership studies and and what they were they actually weren't able to determine what the ideal leader looked like. So what they what they deduced is that essentially there's no cookie cutter definition, but rather when they really dug into the da- data, what they found was that great leaders really were people who emerged from their own stories, or in other words, that they were just their authentic selves. So it's it's not a one size fits all profile, but it definitely does seem that there's there's a distinct advantage in the right place to us trying to be ourselves. So it's something that we should strive for. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so of course, to be authentic, I think the start is to know who you are, because obviously you can't be authentic if you, if you haven't worked out who you are. And I suppose one of the things that I think work does for us in life, and maybe one of the reasons why people like you and me, Susie, are so fascinated by the world of work is that the world of work is probably one of the best places to find out who you are. And maybe that's the job of work in terms of life is to help people find out who they are. And as I often say to people when I'm doing things like 360 feedback surveys, the world of work has identified sort of uh, speedy tools to help you find out who you are. It doesn't want to wait till you get to the end of your life. Things like uh, psychometric tools, uh, things like 360 feedback surveys, obviously feedback from colleagues and managers, formal and informal feedback and and coaching. And these are all really powerful, sometimes painful, but ultimately very powerful and also speedy ways to develop insights about yourself. 
that's a really good point, actually, that they can be quite painful. And I think some people are, are probably a little bit unwilling to engage with these kinds of tools for that reason. I mean, I, I know I had a, a colleague recently who undertook a, a, a full 360 review and, you know, a, a deep dive into his own leadership style. And he was quite perturbed by some of the results. He kept he kept talking to me about it and saying, is this really what people think of me? But but I think like, you know, he would say himself that it was really worthwhile to do it. So it, it is, there's just a little bit of a maybe a slight discomfort that you have to push through. But I, I think the world of work is somewhere that it gives us constant invitations to explore ourselves and to challenge ourselves. But of course, you can only do that when you're mentally available to do it. So maybe the trick is to notice when it's time for you to to re-explore yourself or maybe recreate a new identity or a new level of authenticity that suits you. But Herminia Barra has some very interesting advice about ways to be more authentic at work. And uh, Susie, maybe give, give us a sense of, because I know you like this author, so give us a sense of what her tips are. Yeah, I suppose. Well, one of the, the the big tips she gives, and she does this in the context of you know often where she talks about people who are new to leadership roles, for example, and they're trying to you know find their feet and and you know develop their own their own unique style, I suppose, but also to bring their authenticity to that role. And you know, I think that a lot of these tips she gives, you know, really central to them is this idea that whilst you need to be authentic, you can't lose sight of what your ultimate goal is. And I think a lot of that really resonates with me, certainly. But but the first the first tip she says is is you have to be open to negative feedback and I think that that's really important you know particularly when you're new in a role it's it's you know you're you're, you're basically in a kind of a you know data gathering phase and it's really really important to be open to whatever feedback you can get and I think to constantly seek it the second thing she suggests is to notice when your ideas might be a bit rigid and I suppose that's something that can come from us being you know very <laughs> very kind of aligned to our authentic selves and, mm. and trying to honor our authentic selves is that you know part of that re- is is recognizing that maybe maybe there is rigidity there as well and we need to be flexible and challenge ourselves to you know to open up to opportunities in often in, in new or less familiar roles so I think that's really important as well and and she also talks about the this and I and I, I like this idea it's her third tip to embrace a playful leadership style and I suppose when I think of an example of this and you talked about Barack Obama so if we want to just just keep the theme of uh, of the Obamas running through the, the podcast today I think that Michelle Obama actually is a really good example of someone who adopts playful leadership style and you know she is really really herself and you know you often notice particularly when she was promoting her book there recently she was coming out on stage to these speaking events and you know I think she's always you know always dressed in these kind of bold prints and colors so. You you know, that, that's that's clearly you know a big part of her her, her identity and you know she is a playful person you know she kind of ha- will have a little dance or she'll you know have a joke with somebody and she's she's really real and actually one of my favorite examples from from her book about her, her authenticity and, and I suppose her her sticking to that is when she went into the White House first and she was really horrified because all the staff there were wearing these really formal almost she described them as tuxedo like uniforms and she just couldn't handle the idea of her teenage children being served their dinner on a Tuesday night by a guy in, in a tuxedo eventually essentially so she just issued this this edict straight away that, that they weren't to wear those uniforms anymore so I think that's really a good example of, of being your authentic self and, um, and and you know just being guided by your by your values there which is one of the tips that you, you know you mentioned earlier also having many different role models is something Ibarra talks about and I think that's really really critical as well and not just in, in you know in your I suppose people like the Obamas and, and famous people who are you know models of note but also within your workplace and, and within your own network you know it's you know we often see really good effective examples of leadership I think just on our doorsteps and it's you know there's so much we can learn from that but her final tip and again I think this is is critically important is working on changing your narrative or your story, the story you tell yourself about yourself and others, because we have to accept, and you mentioned this earlier, that we change and we do evolve. And so even though we do have our identity and we do have various personality traits that we can learn a lot about, they're not fixed. You know, we all live on on a spectrum when it comes to, you know, who we are. And I think to just to be open to change and open to to developing and evolving, you know, we, we can't stick too rigidly to the story of who we think we are. That's great advice. And I, I think great advice at a, at a time like this when so many sands are shifting and it's it's uh, sometimes a little bit hard to see see where you where you're going to land in the future for for many of us at the moment. But that idea of a changing narrative, I think, is such a, a freeing idea that, you know, you you often when you're coaching someone, you know, you 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 learn the narrative of their life and the story they tell them themselves. But of course, in telling you as a coach the story, it's almost the beginning of an invitation to give themselves to change that narrative. And it, it can be such a freeing experience to understand that just because stuff happened to you doesn't need to define you for the rest of your life. So a very important question or, or topic to talk about in relation to authenticity. 
But a, a topic that our question that I want to pose is, Susie, is can you be t- too authentic? And we've talked a lot about Herminia Ibarra, but uh, one thing that I, I, I was I wanted to say to you was I, I actually heard her talking on another podcast about her own experience as a lecturer. And uh, it really resonated with me because I have a couple of friends who are lecturers. And I remember uh, both of them going through this tunnel of pain when they started lecturing. And, and she described herself as a, a very academic and introverted person and somebody who wasn't in any way interested in standing up in a, uh, before a room of 519-year-old students. And she asked advice of her colleagues in academia when she started lecturing. And everybody said, just be yourself. And she said it was really a fairly useless piece of advice. It's an advice piece of advice we often give people. But she said when she was being herself as a lecturer, she was being very introverted. She was being very conceptual. She didn't want to engage too much with people. She was shy. She was she was probably didn't have the level of detail that the students wanted. And it didn't help her at all to do what she needed to do, which was to make a big connection with the people she was teaching and to share her very valuable insights. And as I say, I remember two friends of mine both going through that journey. I'd say it probably takes about a year as a lecturer to find a way of linking with your the people you're teaching, but at the same time being your authentic self. So a very good example of how you can sometimes be too authentic. I think lecturing is a really, really good example because I suppose you, be, you, you become a lecturer because you're a subject matter expert and then you find yourself essentially almost like an orator or an actor in front of all these people who, as you say, you know, it's not just teaching them, but you're, you're, you have to entertain them as well. So yeah, I think that must be terrifying. And it brings me back to times I had to stand up in front of a big group of people. And, you know, you often think, oh, I'll just make a joke because it'll break the ice. And then you have those painful moments where nobody laughs. And it just, be, it's all, it's awful. So yeah, no, totally resonate with that. Really, really good example. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but I suppose in a way, you know, th- th- that transition that you described there is is probably something that everybody who's got a an ambitious professional career does. Often, you know, you start off with one set of base skills, and and it's often an issue you see in coaching where people are quite attached to those skills, but have moved to a stage in their career where those skills no longer really drive success. So it can be hard to recognize that and and hard to challenge yourself to develop a new set of skills, but. That's something I think we're all doing generally in life. So a nice way to lead into what is our kind of specialist Susie talk uh, slot today. This is our going to be a regular slot where Susie is going to use her own academic uh, interests and insights and take us through a nice topic that's related to our overall topic. So you're going to talk to us today about uh, emotional intelligence. And we both see this as the absolute driver of knowing yourself and of authenticity. So give us your thoughts, Susie, on emotional intelligence in our Susie talk slot. Absolutely. Okay. Well, I feel a little bit like I'm a girl in a L'Oreal ad and I'm about to say, here's the science bit, so, so pay attention. But um, yeah, in, I suppose in, in some, a key driver, I think, and I know we've talked about this, of oh, really knowing yourself. And this is this is key to being your authentic self and, and bringing that authentic self to the workplace. But it's, it's emotional intelligence. And that, that's really, um, it's, it's also known as EQ or emotional quotient. Um, and it's defined as the ability to monitor one's own and others' feelings and emotions, to discriminate among them and to use this information information to guide one's thinking and action. So I suppose if you think about it in in, in more more general terms, Daniel Goldman, who's often seen as, as one of the, the kind of the, the fathers of, of um, in, in, emotional intelligence, he, he talks about EQ as comprising social personal intelligences. Um, so it's, it's thought to be a, a set of strengths as well that are, that are fundamental to leadership. So it's really, really important in the workplace that we, we know what emotional intelligence is. And, um, you know, we, we find a way to, to, to bring it into our, our leadership and into, you know, just generally into, in, into work. And the American psychologist Martin Seligman, who's also one of the, somebody who's, who writes a lot about positive psychology, but also about emotional intelligence, he notes that EQ is, is essential to maximizing your skills and interests, or what might be termed finding your niche in work. I think if I could just summarize what I think emotional intelligence is to me, it's about being able to pick up on emotional cues from other people in the workplace. And I suppose to, you know, to, to leverage them in, in a positive way, to be aware of what people's needs are, to be aware of, you know, if somebody is struggling with something that you're, you're, you're in a position to identify this, but also to identify those, those, those traits in other people relative to yourself. 
and, and I think knowing yourself and knowing what your own emotional drivers are, um, you know, are, are really, really critical. So EQ as well, and I should say this, it's strongly associated with higher leadership performance. I think it's worth noting an, an interesting study actually that was done amongst American presidents. Now it's, it's a slightly dated study um, and it, it, it looked at 11 different presidents going from Franklin Roosevelt up to Bill Clinton. And it was trying to find, you know, what, what was it that made all these people, I suppose, appealing to the American public and what ultimately resulted in them being elected. And again, there were, there were a whole load of factors, but one of the key factors that, that just kept cropping up and, and seemed to transcend all of the presidents that, that were looked at was emotional intelligence. And I should caveat that the study obviously did precede our, our uh, current current president, outgoing president in the US, Trump. So I don't know if you had any any views on that, Anya. But well, I think it's interesting you say that because I, I think that I suppose it's a deep topic. But I think that what the current president is very adept at doing is really identifying what people's unmet needs are and creating a sense that he he uh, he is a visionary leader that can can deal with those unmet needs. So. I think there's a lot to be learned from that, although there may be some other aspects of his EQ that possibly have scope to develop, as we like to say. I think he probably misuses emotional intelligence in a way that he picks up on these cues and he exploits them, you know, for his own benefit and uses them to to drum up um, conflict and, and division, I suppose. So, you know, the idea of emotional intelligence is that you use it to to collaborate with people and, and to bring people together and unite them. So, yeah, I definitely don't think he's, he's the best example, but we, we, won't, we won't dwell too much on that okay. orange man. But I think... It's useful to look at, um, I suppose there are certain, there are loads of models for emotional intelligence out there because there's been reams and reams written about it, but um, a really useful one that was developed by the psychologist Mark Brackett describes the key elements of emotional intelligence. And, And the first one is perceiving, and that is to recognize emotions in ourselves and in others. And then the second part is when you know, you're building on these as you go. So the first step is perceiving. The second part is then using or, or leveraging your emotions to guide your task selection. So I think kind of a useful everyday example of this is if you're if you're in a bad mood, maybe at work, you know, maybe choose a task that day that doesn't require you having to deal with a lot of people um, something that you can just kind of bury your head in. And, and I, that's a really good example of emotional intelligence in action. Mm. I'm, I'm actually in a bit of a foul mood today, so I'm not going to schedule four meetings where I have to be kind of chirpy and productive and collaborative. And then, you know, on the, on the other side of the coin is if you're feeling positive, do something that does, re- that is challenging and requires that little bit of energy and, and extra input. So as you say, though, sometimes, you know, we just have to get things done. So it might mean attenuating your mood if you know that you have a particular task or a particular meeting that needs your energy and needs your, you know, a particular approach. Um, and you know you're in a bad mood or you know you're not feeling great to, to just try and, and regulate that a little mm. bit better. Very nice practical yeah. practical advice there. Yeah. And then the third layer of, of this is understanding and, and that's you know again obviously our emotions are complex and, and we all need to increase our emotional vocabulary both from the point of view of self-regulation and in reading others and you know we talked about this you know again it's, it's getting to know yourself and you know there are all kinds of tools out there and, and coaching is a great way to to educate yourself I suppose on on your own I suppose emotional landscape finding a way to actually you know leverage emotions because emotions at the end of the day are, are like like anything else like our thoughts they're data you know they're telling us something um, and, and we have to let be in a position to listen to that and to understand it so great way to think about that yeah and then finally and this is the the, i suppose the real if you can get to the stage you've you've mastered emotional intelligence but it's it's managing and this is this is the piece about self-regulation so how do you manage your tendency towards certain emotions and you know and and, you know in my in my own life i i am somebody who can be sometimes you know a little bit oversensitive to people's emotions you know i'm I'm quite an empathic person which i think is great if Mm. certainly in my coaching work but what i do find sometimes in my in my day job is that i can be very very sensitive to other people being and maybe a little bit tired or unmotivated or, or maybe a little bit fed up and I, I I can be too sensitive to that to the point that I'm maybe not focused on on the task at hand I think it's quite important again to be uh, to be aware of your own tendencies or <laughs> another nice example is actually probably the opposite is a friend of mine and uh, we always joke that she says she's got really really quick access to her emotions so if she gets angry or, or annoyed about something at work she says that she's always very aware that her instinct is to just kind of go in and like you know it just go off the handle and just get cross. But she's very, very aware of that. So she says she spends most of her time at work trying to attenuate that and, and trying to pull it back. So we almost have the opposite problems. So sometimes we have a bit of a laugh. 
it's a very interesting example of where being your authentic self probably doesn't serve your goals. Something that's worth thinking about, I think, in terms of how to use your self-awareness effectively to make sure that you achieve things that are important to you. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's part of being a leader as well. People aren't always going to like you. <laughs> aren't always, you know, they're not always going to be happy with what you're getting them, asking them to do. But at the end of the day, we have to, we have to meet our goals. So, you know. Sure, sure. So that's quite interesting little topic there on emotional intelligence. But let's going back to sort of the overall topic of authenticity. What are we recommending here? What's our takeout from this, Susie? Well, I think there are a lot of practical things that people can do. And this isn't just, just relevant to the workplace, but I think we can apply some of these tips even in our personal lives as well. But I think the first tip is, is to get to know yourself. That, that's really, really critical. That, that's the key to authenticity. And we talked about some of the ways that you can go about getting to know yourself in coaching, obviously, is something we have to recommend because mm. we're purveyors of the service. Indeed. Um, yeah, but I think, you know, you described coaching to me, you know, when one of the first times we met as, as an adult learning experience and, you know, that was your adult learning process. That's very much what it is, because just because we're, we're adults, it doesn't mean that we, we can't learn. You know, maybe the final frontier is learning about ourselves. So, you know, there, there's all kinds of ways that we can, we, can, we can do that. And I think it's just really important for people, particularly if they are ambitious and they, and they want to be in leadership roles to be able to do that. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think I love that idea that the final frontier is is knowing about yourself. That's that's something we can all aim for. One of the things that I'm taking out from this talk is really allowing a bit more flexibility in ourselves and remembering that you know we we don't have to be a rigid version of ourselves. And maybe maybe a tip is not to be too rigid or to notice when, we, when we're being a bit rigid and to remember that, you know, our, our preferences are, are not fixed. They're, they're on a scale and we can move them up and down at will. That's one of the amazing things about being a human being, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. And, and I think that gets, that gets into one of the other tips that we have, which is, is to think about your narrative. And, and I think let that be a work in progress or, you know, a live idea that this, this story we tell ourselves about who we are and the story we tell other people, it's something that needs to be up, updated regularly. It actually reminds me of, there's a psychologist who I, I like quite a lot as well called Barry Schwartz. He, he writes a lot about the paradox of, of choice and, and change, but he talks a lot about how we really, we really underestimate the extent to which we change. If you take a 10 year period, you know, we, we change massively. Um, all the time so being being too fixed to a certain narrative or story about yourself really is, is going to be to your detriment ultimately if you can't be aware of your development and, and the extent to which you're evolving yeah I love that I think that's so so important for what we're all going through at the moment was one of the things that one of my observations about the whole pandemic is how incredibly flexible and resilient we have all been absolutely yeah. everybody mm-hmm. and uh, I think it's something we've kind of overlooked you know so I, I think the human race or, or those of us who've been Im- impacted by the pandemic can really rejoice and reflect in in our resilience and our ability to shift our, our ways of thinking and being so quickly it's kind of chaos theory isn't it that like it's yeah un- sometimes it takes a great period of, of unsettlement and discomfort to really drive effective change so yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and that brings us on to another tip, which is to approach every situation differently. And, and that sounds very simplistic, maybe, but actually, it's probably the secret to success in a lot of ways to actually approach the situation with some thinking rather than just sort of going into it on autopilot, which I think is what most of us do, if we're honest, most of the time. Mm-hmm. So to, to step back and think, well, what is the situation? And what's the right me to bring to this situation? given that I have lots of me's, I've lots of ways of being an authentic me, but what's the right way in terms of what, what this situation calls for? And I think that authenticity, I mean, I suppose it, it probably needs to distinguish between, you know, knowing yourself and being true to yourself in an ideological sense versus being authentic in your behavior. Because I think as long as you have one, <laughs> you know, you're, you're still being authentic, even though mm. recognizing that there are situations where you won't be able to do what you, what you would ultimately like to do if you were listening to your, your value system. But, but still knowing that and being aware of that, I think, is, is, is the armor to not feeling like you're being compromised. Yeah, yeah. So... Uh, also, to go back to the Obamas, having the ability to show a bit of vulnerability, I think, is something that can really help other people to, to connect with you and see who you are and not being afraid to laugh or show your emotions or deviate from the norm, I think, is something that is is 
helps people to to see your authenticity being signaled to them and something that helps you to adapt and bring your authenticity to any situation. You know, I'm a big fan of Brené Brown. I do. Yeah. <laughs> I think that Brené Brown's uh, TED Talk, Power of Vulnerability, um, is, is probably for me, I would I would say the first time I watched that, it was it was almost life-changing because, and, and you know what, so is that she's really, really authentic in how she speaks and she talks mm. about realization which she she did she said she's a researcher in in social work and you know she was doing this research on you know what made people feel wholehearted and what she found was that the most wholehearted kind of content people were people who embraced vulnerability and that was really really kind of a shock to her um, because she just didn't like the idea of it and I think a lot of people tend to maybe associate vulnerability with weakness but I, I think there's been a shift. I think there's definitely been a shift in, in you know, in recent years in, in society. And we don't think of vulnerability that way anymore. But actually, it's it's really essential to authenticity and it's essential to being who you are is to being able to, to demonstrate that. So, yeah, I'd encourage anybody who's interested in vulnerability as a topic to go and, and read some of Brene Brown's work or, or look at her TED Talk. I think it's one of the top five most watched TED Talks on, on the TED website. So absolutely. worth checking out. Thanks for that. So I suppose another another of our tips is something that you hear quite often, which is the phrase, and I've used it myself many times, fake it till you make it. I think this is a kind of, maybe it's a statement that's said very glibly a lot, but it's a very useful piece of advice. And one of the times when when people think most about, you know, who they are and how, who, how they're coming across to others is when you have a new role, particularly if it's a new leadership role. When you, that's might be a time when you are building a new narrative. And I, I think we, we both feel that that's a great piece of advice to give yourself, maybe at a time when you are changing, is to start being who you, who you want to be or who you think you're, you're developing into before you actually get there. So a bit like the advice that you often give someone when, they, when they're going for promotion, dress for the job you want, not the one you have. That's a, a build on fake it till you make it. So that's definitely, I think, a tip worth taking forward. And I think there's a lot of interesting science on this as well. I mean, particularly if you look at the um, the, the, the hormones that I suppose drive our behaviours and I, the stress hormone, which is, is cortisol, is something that we you know, we have when we're stressed. And what they've what they found, and I don't know how necessarily <laughs> how legitimate this research is, but it is it is out there. Was they said that if you actually hold yourself in a way where you you're more confident, you know, you put your shoulders back, you stand up straight, um, and you you know you put your arms out and you make yourself big, you can actually suppress cortisol and you can you can drive up more adrenaline. So I mean, the question is when, you know, Usain Bolt crosses the finish line after the 100 metres, he lifts his arms in victory because he's just coursing with adrenaline. But the question is, if you, you know, is it the chicken or the egg? If you start off by lifting your arms in victory, can you create the adrenaline that you need to feel better about yourself? So I think in terms of this idea that a lot of people say to me, I wish I could be more confident at work. Well, act like you're more confident at work, you know, hold yourself differently, you know, be be, be bigger in how you stand. Don't, don't make yourself small. Don't cross your legs and curl up. Just fake it till you make it. Well, that's great. Well, now, uh, just to let you know, I have actually straightened up in my chair and put my shoulders back and my arms out. I think that's a wonderful tip. And that's something I'm going to be practicing next week. So thank you for that. That's a great, uh, a great piece of advice. And I suppose final piece of advice, I think, is to think about the work environment that you're in and to choose one that supports you to be yourself. Mm. I think something that you notice when you coach people is how values become much more important over the course of someone's careers and how it's really important, I think, for people to be in a workplace or a work environment where their values are are welcome, are seen, are recognized as valuable and authentic. And so I think if, if you want to be more authentic, Maybe think about the environment you're in, the culture you're working in, the organization you're in and the work you're doing. I think that's absolutely right. And, and you know, I actually, I refer to this as almost in my mind as, as a threshold piece. And we've, you know, we've both left work environments in the past that that maybe, you know, we, we ultimately felt weren't going to suit us in the long run. And I think when you get to that stage and, and you know, if you want to go on this journey of self-knowledge and figure out who you are and really, really get in tune with your values, you know, you might ultimately find that the workplace you're in just, just doesn't support that, you know, in the long run. And, you know, whilst we try to help people as coaches to to adapt and be flexible and, and you know, find ways to thrive in their workplaces, you know, there, there is a limit. You can't contort yourself into a position where you are so, so far removed from your authentic self that, that you're really living a lie at the end of the day. And um, it's important to compromise and it's important to be to be flexible. But you know, there may, may, may come a day where you just find this, this isn't for me ultimately. And I think that that should factor into any decision to leave a job. So that's definitely, yeah, a good, a good final point, I think, to end with is the, uh, the threshold piece. <laughs> 
Great. Very good. So we'll put our tips on the show notes and we encourage you to have a listen to those or have a look at those and maybe take one of them forward and try it out. It's a great way to be authentic and be yourself and also be moving towards the next version of yourself. Absolutely. And now we're moving on to our interview session, which is an an in-depth interview with Roland Anderson, uh, who is an addiction counsellor. And we're going to talk to him about about his career and uh, essentially what what a day in the the life of an addiction counsellor looks like. So Anya, if you want to introduce Roland. Yeah, so Roland uh, Anderson is a a good friend of mine and uh, Roland has been an addiction and counsellor for quite a long time. I'm I'm nearly frightened to ask you how many years, Roland, how long have you been in the the addiction counselling game? Uh, 44 years, yeah, so I started Wow, wow. So it's kind of your Ruby plus anniversary. Yeah, I suppose you could put it that way. Very good. Okay. So we're going to start off, I think, by talking to you about our topic today, which is your authentic self and how to be yourself at work. And just a quick question for you about authenticity. Do you think you're your authentic self at work, Roland? Yeah, it's a question um, I'm almost a little bit uncomfortable with. It's like one of these questions that if you ask somebody and you you really think about it, it kind of ruins it in a way, if you know what yeah. I mean. But yeah, I, I, yes, I think I'm my authentic self. I, I think I think I, I, what you get is what you see with me. But obviously, when you're doing a job, you don't get the whole picture. Because if I was to talk about my whole picture all the time, um, I wouldn't be listening to people properly, and I wouldn't be trying to work out what's wrong and so on. So I think you get the you get the kind of uh, broad aspect of myself, but probably not the detail that people who are closer to me would get. Okay, very good. Yeah. So uh, Roland, uh, for anyone who doesn't know him, is a specialist in alcohol problems, addiction and occupational health issues. And Roland, you've a lot of experience in this area and you've 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 had a kind of unique career in that you are currently in private practice, but you've also held public practice roles and have worked in some of the major institutions in Ireland who are leading in the area of addiction. And in fact, you've actually written a book. So you're our first published author. Uh, Your book is entitled Living with a Problem Drinker, Your Survival Guide, which was published in 2010. But I think we're going to go right back to the beginning and just talk to you about how it all started. Yeah, I was just going to, I'll chime in with my sort of my standard opener, which is very, very back to the beginning, Roland, is, is when you were when you were a child and you thought about what you wanted to be when you grew up, what, what was your uh, initial dream? Oh my goodness. I honestly don't know now. I, I haven't thought about that for a long time. I, I think lots of different things. I, I think I wanted to, um, I think the usual stuff, like I wanted to be a tractor driver. I wanted to be a pilot. Mm. Uh, I wanted to, later on, I think I wanted to be a top class golfer. Yeah. Uh, honestly, I'd say I changed my mind about twenty or thirty times. And, and so, how then did you actually get into addiction counselling? Like in terms of your your training and what did you do? When I was um, finished my leaving cert, I in those days I went for a job and I got a very good job. Um, I was very good at. Um, I'm a funny kind of individual in that I, I'm very intuitive, but I also had lots of good sort of um, academic criteria um and by the way hopeless at diy and stuff like that but that's by the way so anyway i got a very very good job i i remember really clearly uh spending a night thinking and thinking and thinking about this uh, it was in the insurance industry and i said i don't want to do this I, I i know it sounds coy and funny but I, I love people i love i love knowing people i love understanding people i love stories i always love mm-hmm. stories and uh, and therefore i said uh, you know what could i do and uh, I think I had a conversation with a couple of people who said, uh, why don't you consider doing social work? So that's really it. I mean, obviously, it wasn't as simple as that. I had to apply and everything else and get picked for the course and so on. The first year in uh, social work in those days was a general course, and then you branch off into training in, in social work properly, so to speak. And uh, so, so that's how it happened. Yep. It sounds like you, you knew yourself at a pretty early age. You had that insight to know that you didn't want to have, I suppose, you know, a job in, in insurance or, you know, a job that was maybe a bit desk based that you really did want that personal touch and to be dealing with people. Yeah, I think I think uh, that was a very, uh, very important uh, part of my life, you know, um, that where I made that decision because, uh, you know, I did have good options. Um, but I really, and I, again, you know, it's it's it sounds twee, but I really wanted to try and see could I make a difference with, with folk and um Again, social work was a was a, a, a different career for men in those days. You know, it was almost reverse um, reverse 
sexism of sort because I think it was eight or nine or seven or eight of us in the class, maybe off about 30. And uh, so, it was, you know, so I was in a co-ed school as well. And uh, I, I, I loved it. I loved the gender balance and all that, you know. Yeah, I, I don't know how well I knew myself up to that. I mean, a social work training course is very demanding and it's very like when you actually get onto the social work part itself, the actual training and, you know, several things blow your mind when you work in that area, especially if you're from a fairly middle class background. So, yeah, I, I'm not sure how well I knew myself at that stage, but I think, you know, that kind of makes you know yourself an awful lot better very quickly. Yeah, and I suppose in terms of you having been in the in the field now for so long and obviously getting to know yourself better, you know, throughout that time, what, what do you think would be the key characteristics, attributes, I suppose, that a person, you know, would need to have going into a career that, that you think maybe from your experience? I, I think you have to have um, empathy uh, and I think you have to have it in, in spades. I think you have to be able to park some of it and mind yourself in it because you could easily get drowned in the in the difficulties and the stories. And I think you learn that as you go along and you learn how to cope with that and learn how to manage it to some extent anyway. I'm not sure you ever fully manage that, by the way, uh, because I think if you're if you're really if you are a caring kind of individual who wants to be of help, I think it does have an impact on you. But um, I've never regretted it. Um, and um, I, I, one aspect of social, the reason I went into a specialty then was my first placement was in a psychiatric hospital. Um, when I was studying, I, I really enjoyed that. The alcohol component was there because where I worked, I started, I worked on placement in St. Patrick's Hospital. I was very interested in that. I, I was a little bit uneasy about the generalism uh, of uh, social work. My perceived concept was that it was a little bit of lack of structure, rightly or wrongly. My first post was in St. Patrick's Hospital. Uh, that, was, that was partly chance. I suppose the placement helped a little bit in that. Uh, so the appointment was very clearly in social work, but I, then I graduated into um, addiction counselling. There was no addiction counsellors in those days. I actually taught one of the first courses. I like the specialty and um, I like the structure of it rather than the general generalism. I think that's why I got into it. Could I ask you, Roland, I was really struck by the concept you, you had there of minding yourself, because it's probably something we should all be doing. What sort of things do you do to, to mind yourself and how do you know you're minding yourself? My goodness, that's a very heavy, deep, uh, difficult question to answer. I, I, I think, you know, I, I, I don't think I was very good at it, um, you know, uh, way back. I think I, I was pretty bad at it, like so long hours, really long hours, very dedicated, um, you know, and, and obviously you're forging your career in those days as well. But I, I also think, it, you know, it's, it's really good. Uh, in those days, I would have had fantastic colleagues and uh, that would be very important. And there was a kind of a, there was a great kind of banter behind the scenes and great support behind the scenes. And I, I always loved that. I mean, how do you mind yourself? I, I, I think you have to, we must go through supervision. Um, and I think that's an important part of minding yourself. But also I think it's have a good, uh, I mean, I know it's, again, this is terribly cliched, work-life balance. Um, so I think it's good to have lots of other interests and lots of other um, activities. And I've, I've lots and lots of things that I do outside of work. And lots of healthy distractions, I can use that phrase as well, along the way. And I think, you know, you have to know uh, when, you know, you, you know, it, it's not a soft profession, if I can say that. It's, it, there's a hardness to it. You have to be, you know, you have to be able to, to get stuck in and, 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 uh, and work and uh, really try, if you're trying to help people with whatever problems they have. Uh, the book you referred to was about how families are affected. And uh, so, you know, that's another aspect of it. So. You just have to, you know, I think I've got much better. I think I'm much better as I'm coming towards the end of my career. I think I've got much better at minding myself and getting that, that sort of work-life balance better, I think. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned, um, Roland, that one of the, the things that's important in your role is, is to have a lot of empathy. And you know, I think you alluded to it as well in the context of minding yourself, because obviously people who, who tend to be very empathic oftentimes struggle with boundaries and they struggle to, to kind of maintain that, that that sort of, you know, delineation between between work and, and life. And particularly when, as you say, your job does require listening to really heavy stuff. So I was thinking, and you mentioned as well that previously you'd worked with colleagues and that was that was a huge support to you. But, you know, in private practice where you are essentially working on your own, um, and you, do, do you find that's an aspect of it that you miss or, you know, whether are there, you know, what, what's that like, I suppose, carrying that burden on your own? 
Oh, I wouldn't like to have done it the other way around. Let me put it that way to you. And uh, I, you know, so to have the experiences that you, you worked with, I worked in several different places. I was in St. Patrick's and the Rutland Centre for three years only. And then I had a fantastic uh, position in, uh, as the National Alcohol Project Director for the College of GPs. In all those places, it was, it was good support and good, as I called it earlier, banter. So I wouldn't like to have done it the other way around. But like you get used to that. There is an element of that. that uh, but uh, frankly, sometimes you're so busy that you just, you, you, you know, you, you don't even really properly uh, deal with that. And again, lots of support outside of work. That helps a lot. But yeah, it, it, it's good. Now, the also reverse is true. You can work in environments which are toxic sometimes. So you, you have to mind yourself in that as well. But yeah, no, I, I've been very privileged in my career. I've, 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 I've had a charmed existence in so many ways, career-wise um, and life-wise, I guess. And I think that's uh, that's good. Uh, certainly some very difficult times and very difficult moments. And and uh, again, if you if you do genuinely care about what you're doing, and I'd be passionate about the work, and I absolutely love my work, you have to be careful. You, and the word you mentioned, it's really important. Uh, a lot of people in my work, the people I look after, certainly in the early days of trying to try and help people, they have to actually have active help in setting boundaries. But the, the therapist has to have boundaries too. Mm. And uh, sometimes you have to make that clear that this is the way this is the way it's going to be. Uh, sometimes you work out a kind of a contract. Uh, it's it's not a, it's not a formal contract with someone uh, to make you know like when can you be accessible you know how often all that kind of so I think that helps a lot. But sometimes you have to you have to help the person to set those boundaries. Yeah, I'm curious, and I know we we alluded to it. I suppose in the context of our discussion around being your authentic self, but I'm curious about about addiction in general and and whether being an addict is essentially an authentic part of a person's personality is it a a genetic or biological component somehow or is it not i I mean in your view i mean so i think um i think you me and everybody on you and everybody that um that exists are are made up of all sorts of different parts so the medical psychological the brain i guess uh, hereditary genetics and your values your feelings which develop and change you know, people we see are no different in that regard. What I would say is this, that if somebody is, the term addict I don't like, so we say dependent, people who are dependent, um, and then there's degree of, so, I mean, to be not to be too technical about it, but in the alcohol area, there's low risk, hazardous, harmful, or dependent drinking. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the response, and that's very difficult to detect, by the way, no matter how experienced you might be, the, the word addict is can be used in a, in a funny way. When the person is, for want of a better expression, acting out, when they're acting out as in out of control or behaving badly or they're doing things that they would normally feel very bad about or very ashamed about or chaotic kind of existence, I personally don't think that's the authentic self. It's a, it's a, it's a huge argument, but I don't think so. I, because, you know, I think when people recover, they often say, you know, what was I thinking of back in that time? You know, I think we're all a bit like that, by the way. You know, you make mistakes and you say, what on earth did I think about it? Or how did I do that? Or how did I think that was a good idea, you know, at the time? So I think it's probably multiplied by 20 in the case of mm-hmm. someone who, um, who's actively in addiction uh, or dependent, whichever words we want to use. I think language is very important and help people to understand uh, the labels, you know, and, and uh, yeah, but I, for me, and uh, you know, a small part of it as well, um, you know, constantly people believe that in an argument with somebody who's, uh, you know, very drunk or or very drugged, that they're actually hearing the truth from the person in that moment. And I would say, no, that's not not truth at all, because what what you're seeing is a sort of you're you're looking at it through a prism, like a bottle. You're looking at through a bottle, so it's not it's not authentic. It's a, some sort of a it's some sort of filtered version of it but it's not the, the real thing it's not something you would say uh, or do if you're in your full health i was surprised by that actually <laughs> the, the truth comes out when you're drunk is something people always always sort of uh, argue isn't it yeah certainly in dependent drinking if i can make that distinction the the arguments tend to be circular they tend to be repeated they tend to be default mode, some sort of brain issue uh, that, or personality issue that the person goes back to and the, 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 the argument just goes round and round in circles. It's the same argument that happened three years ago, so to speak, and it's never been resolved, something like that. What sort of people come to you, Roland? From every walk of life, Anya, um, literally from every walk of life. Um, I'm in private practice, uh, so I tend to see people who are able to pay for private um, appointments. But 
literally from every walk of life. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you exactly, you know, the groupings, young, old people who are worried about somebody with a problem, people who have the problem themselves or children of people with a problem and so on and so forth. So honestly, from every walk of life, uh, that's always been the case. And there's a lot of sort of myths about somebody that they, how the how the person presents, you know. Mm. Um, like the, the, you know, part. people talk about the addictive personality. Is that something you you believe in? No, not really. I, I, again, it's a huge argument. I mean, we could spend an hour talking about that on its own. But no, not really. I, you know, I, I would be a strong believer, and um, in you know, and maybe this is contradictory, but heredity is a factor in it, mm. and genetics are a factor in it. Uh, but often trauma is a big factor in it. I like the concept of um, serious trauma. It's what probably we'd all agree is trauma. But contextual trauma, I'd be very interested in things that have happened to people that are that are really important, but they, they're almost afraid to say it because it seems so trivial, uh, you know, uh, as compared to a, a real-life awful trauma, for want of a better expression. Um, so I'd be very interested in that. So the personality disorder um, kind of, um, uh, the addictive personality concept, I don't like it myself. I, again, it's like the labels. I, I, for example, in treatment centers, they used to say if you had an, an alcohol problem, you couldn't gamble in any shape or form. Uh, you couldn't play the lotto or you couldn't do that. That's largely being discounted now. And the, the general, I mean, we do meet people with multiple addictions, but it's generally been discounted. And so I, I would be saying that, you know, life events are very important, trauma is very important. And of course, you know, strongly believe that it, a lot of it goes back to your breeding, for want of a better expression again, uh, and your, you know, how, how strong your relationships were early in life and uh, how lucky you are or unlucky you are in that regard. And over your 40 or 45 years, have you seen a change in the kind of addictions people are are, are experiencing? Dependence is pretty much similar. Um, I, I, I suppose the way I would look at it probably changed more than the actuality of it um, uh, of the of people. The, one of the big differences in the alcohol area is the number of um, when I started off, it would have been about eight or ten to one um, male female ratio. Whereas nowadays uh, it'll be almost parity, you know, in treatment centres anyway. So to be a large, why is that? I don't know. Um, why that is. We could speculate on all sorts of things, but uh, other than that, we've learned a lot more, as I said, about trauma and so on. I'm curious as well, Roland. I mean, obviously, you're in private practice, so you're, you know, you're seeing people who can, who have the means to get the help that they need. But I mean, you know, we all are, you know, observing this phenomenon of, you know, people who are homeless on the street, and you know, oftentimes I imagine that's due to addiction issues. I mean, are there supports there in in the public sec in the public service? available there and, and, and you know what improvements need to be made there if they're not oh uh, yeah there's, there's 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 quite a bit i mean there's not there's never enough um in any of these services and um, and there's much more services uh, available for people who have the resources or the means or the health insurance but there are there are i'm without going into all the details there are some excellent services available uh, not nearly enough um, and addiction is a big part of almost but it's not the only factor yeah. And I mean, presumably as well, you know, most addictions exist on a, on a spectrum. So, you know, I'd imagine that you must see quite a lot of people who could function quite well, even, you know, with, with the addiction and maybe go into work every day and lead ostensibly quite normal lives, but are hiding this this secret. I mean, you know, how, how, how right is that as a, as a phenomenon? Well, uh, again, uh, my view on that would be that the, the, the sort of term functioning alcoholic is, 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 um, is a misnomer. It's it's because if 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 you have an uh, if you have a dependence at some level, you're not functioning. It may not be obvious for quite a while, and you may be able to cover it up in all sorts of ways. There was a there was an old um, American film which said this famous quote: "It says it shows up first at home, it shows up last at work." And um, so, so you know, people tend to protect that image a lot, but what goes on behind closed doors is often very different. So I'm not sure who invented the functioning alcoholic. <laughs> may have been the drinks industry uh, but, uh, because uh, it, it's definitely not right because um, as I say if, if, you, if you have a problem the term alcoholism is kind of all, all but it's all it's still going to be there forever but it's gone in all the scientific work it's all about alcohol dependence um, but if you're in trouble at some level you're not you're not functioning at every level if you know what I mean Do you think your work is a job or a vocation? Oh think about that a lot believe it or not I think there's a vocational aspect to it I mean, I can imagine if some people listen to that, they say, no, he's just a, 
he's just a ruthless uh, therapist who does who does his best to get people straightened out. But no, I, for me, there's definitely a vocational aspect to it. And and maybe a build on that question: How do you think when you look back on your 45 years of of work? How do you think your work has enriched your own life? Well, I don't know. I'm not sure really uh, about that. I think. I don't know what to say, but as I said, I have a charmed existence in, in work and I've had lots of movement and lots of different uh, work. Um, and uh, on a very personal level, that's meant that, you know, I've gone to places and seen places and lectured in places and done things that are that I never ever got the opportunity to do that. On a personal level, I think it makes you far more tolerant and understanding and uh, far, far, far less judgmental than and, um, you know, I would have been, say, back when I was 16 or 17 or whatever. I think we often say to people that sometimes this is a dangerous thing to say, you know, you, you've committed no crimes, you know, but that's dangerous sometimes because some people have. Um, but most people are just human. And uh, as I always say, beautifully human in the sense that with faults and all, like the rest of us. And uh, I, I, I honestly, I, again, I would feel that, you know, there but for the grace, so to speak, you know, anyone can be found in that situation. So I think that gives you a greater tolerance. You know, I, I, I would be naturally, I mean, I'd be, I would be a giver in terms of trying to, I, as I said, I love stories. I, I'd be very, uh, uh, you know, I have to be careful with this. I'd be always willing to help. And, I, you know, you can take that too far uh, sometimes and get you get, get overloaded. And I'd much better, a much better balance of that nowadays. Probably if I had time to think of that question, Anya, I'd probably have a whole lot more answers to you. But I think that's yeah, it. Uh, that's a good enough answer, I think. Can I ask you, Roland, and I'm, I'm curious, we haven't touched on the, the, the P word yet, the pandemic, but, um, you know, presumably things that, th- you know, that that's thrown up a lot of issues for people. And I'm just wondering, are, are you seeing that people's addiction problems are intensified more generally or, or are there different types of addictions even, you know, what, what how it's how it's playing out in that regard? All I can tell you is that the off-license have, have done fantastically well through the pandemic. The pubs happened. I, I, I do. I'd be kind of interested in in the kind of the, the sort of politics of it, you know, and the power of the of the lobbying organisations or lack of power. Maybe maybe there's a change in that the situation. From my patients' point of view, from talking to patients, uh, it's it's for me. It's divided right down the middle. Uh, lots of people are saying it's it's great. It's fantastic. I'm doing great. Uh, they're spending more time at home. Uh, they're enjoying that. They have a built-in excuse as well for avoiding certain things and certain things aren't open and then there's another side that are absolutely in awful trouble full of anxiety drinking or, or drugging whatever the case may be whatever the addiction might be worse than before and isolated lack of support treatment centers are not as are not as available not as accessible they are accessible they are available but not as accessible so for me it's split right down the middle some people are, are actually you know uh, and I, you know it's interesting as well i'm not sure there's any age difference in this I've I've been thinking of a few young people I'm seeing who say, "Look, it's great. I, you know, I've, it's been much easier uh, to stay clean and sober because the pubs are closed, because the parties aren't there. Uh, you know, worried about what they're always concerned about Christmas. You know, I think the insanity of twelve days of Christmas and all that kind of stuff. Generally, I think it's an insanity um, uh, of a type. So, you know, and, and you obviously be worried uh, for people. You know, with the with just in general with the restrictions being lifted. But no, it's split down the middle for me. I think if you have, so another thing I haven't even talked about is that a lot of people with uh, addiction problems have mental health issues, some very severely and some what some people might call mildly. And so um, anxiety and depression would be would be very, very common with any form of addiction. And alcohol certainly would, and all drugs, but just to talk about alcohol, alcohol generally, if you're suffering from anxiety, it makes it worse. Short term, it makes it better. Long term, it makes it much, much worse. Same with depression. Um, and uh, I don't think that message is really permeated properly uh, in society. I don't think people understand that. That's really fascinating to me, actually, because when you said that, anxiety and depression are at the root of a lot of addictions. But I think they're probably at the root of a lot of other things, too. I mean, eating disorders, all sorts of dysfunctional behaviours. I'm just wondering what we can do to make people more psychologically literate and to try and address those problems at a younger age and do preventative measures. It just seems to me that there is a misunderstanding in society about a lot of these issues and that there must be a better way to, to approach it from a policy perspective. I don't know if you have any views on that. You'd want to invest an awful lot of money in it and uh, to get those messages across. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure it's a message people want to hear sometimes, you know, 
uh, because you know they, they want to think in terms of um, you know, especially if we talk about alcohol alcohol is a public drug if you know what I mean not the hidden drug uh, for want of a better expression uh, and I'm not suggesting uh, everyone has a problem I'm, I'm not even hinting at that but I, I'm not sure people want to hear that because I, I think it's an uncomfortable reality if you suffer from any level of anxiety or significant anxiety lots of very very successful people have significant anxiety um, worries and if you for whatever reason, you start to treat it with alcohol, it's going to make it worse, almost inevitably. And um, it's, an, it's sort of an uncomfortable truth, I think. And I think depression as well. Like when I was working for the College of GPs, that was something that we really tried to get that message out there to GPs as well and to practice nurses. And, and you know, and, and that was reasonably successful. Um, and, and probably that's where it has to come from at that level. You know, I think at a political level, I'm not sure they're ready to attack that issue because, I think, frankly, I think sometimes they're afraid of the lobbying interests, you know, uh, and the, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, the big argument of whether uh, there's a net gain or a net loss economically because of alcohol on its own, that's a big argument as well. So, you know, I think probably the way is through the health services, but then the health services smother work and stress out their nuts in terms of trying to get work done. And, and, and again, in COVID times, even more so. So, you know, and, and look, the whole, I, mean, I think everyone knows this. I mean, the, the whole health service has been underfunded for years and years and years and years. Um, but anyway, that's, I, I'm probably straying. Yeah. I don't mean to I mean, don't mean to stray. That, that's what I think. No, no, I can, I'm fascinated by this. I could probably listen to it all day, but I'm conscious of time. Then, Anya, do you have any other questions before we finish up? Well, I think we've got our miracle question. Will you ask the miracle question, Susie? That's our, usually our last question. My miracle question, Roland, is if you were told that you could pack it all in in the morning and money was no object, you'd won the lottery, would, would you still do it? Or is there some other unrealized dream besides becoming a pro golfer <laughs> that you'd pursue? Or it could be being a pro golfer. <laughs> I would have said no up to quite recently. But yeah, I'm coming to the end of my career, Susie. So I have a year to go and um, 11 months to be precise. And um, so 11, a little over 11 months. No, the answer is still be no. I'd still want to do the job I do. Uh, I'd probably, and I am, I have taken steps in the last few years to work a little bit less. That's more due to personal issues as well. But uh, no, I, funny, I used to say that, that if, if I won the lotto, so to speak, um, I'd certainly be still working, probably not as hard as I, wa- I was, but I definitely would still be working because that's what I said about the vocational aspect of it. I think there is a, a vocational aspect to it without sort of talking rubbish. I think there is a, vocational aspect well we'll definitely be, be linking anyway just just the the your website and your book and the show notes as well so if anybody's interested in, in finding out more about you or, or about your book they can click in and have a look thanks Anya. thank you roland anderson and uh, thank you listeners for tuning into the world of work we look forward to talking to you again on our next show bye-bye <laughs>